0: Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I have to say, I too want to welcome you, but I have to say that this is probably our most exciting um, post-ASH program that we've ever offered um, over these many years, just because it's really on the heels of, um, and literally on the heels of ASH ending, which actually ended yesterday for people who stayed an extra day for post-conference pe- pe- pieces. So our speakers have really just come back from ASH with the best and freshest information for you to hear. Today's program is indeed a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as blood cancer organizations, and we really thank them all for helping to spread the word so that you all can know about this program. Now, we We have on the program today over 535 participants, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Croatia, India, and Turkey. So we are a global call to some extent as well. Now, today's program is supported by AbbVie, the Cell Gene Corporation, Gilead, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, and an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company. So we want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have the best speakers on today's program, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Uh, Dr. Morrow is leader of myeloproliferative neoplasms program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and professor of medicine while Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Morrow is going to address the purpose of the American Society of Hematology or ASH annual meeting. An overview of blood cancers, and he's also going to do leukemia-specific and myeloproliferative neoplasm-specific treatment and research updates from ASH. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Uh,
2: thank you, Carolyn, and, and thank you everyone for joining us. We're uh, we're fresh off the plane, fresh off the off the trip from from the ASH meeting, the American Society for Hematology meeting, and I, like my colleagues, find myself. Um, Disclaiming or describing to my patients and even to other colleagues that I'm, I'm going off to ASH, which um, I'm not sure everyone knows what the acronym stands for, but the American Society for Hematology meeting is a very large gathering of blood cancer specialists every December um, in different cities in the United States, mainly whatever city can hold all of us, upwards of 50,000 physicians. The purpose of the meeting is to share research, um, to come together as a as an organization of physicians, a, a um, Uh, with leadership and a a huge membership around the world um, with the main purpose of advancing the field and, and organizing ourselves and collaborating and communicating. You may um, be familiar with the output of such meetings. People talk about um, talks and abstracts and uh, things along those uh, lines. The meeting includes um, an educational program where experts in the field are asked to give an overview of available um, information, the best and the latest information about different disease states, about current clinical topics. that's that's one part of it. There's a, a great support for physicians in training um, in order to help them through their journey from a, a more junior physician to a more senior physician or researcher. Um, that's a big part of the American Society for Hematology. There are awards to be given to physicians of prominence based on their career and their accomplishments and discoveries. The biggest part of the meeting is research presentation, and that includes what are called abstracts, which are presentations, um, either oral presentations, poster presentations, literally just what you think. You make a poster with um, your research written out and and, and the diagrams that you need, almost like you're writing a paper for a journal or writing a paper for a a, um, a class. And your abstract may be be declined. It may be accepted and just put into the abstract uh, it may be just published, um, but what you'd like to do is be able to share it with people. And there are sessions where uh, we have posters where people walk through. And you're, the, for example, um, I had several posters, and I I was there to share the research and answer questions. I had uh, posters presented by fellows and residents that I have uh, I train and work with here. So I was very proud to have our research accepted in that way. Um, I was also, myself and all of us are a part of what are called oral presentations, which is a bit more prestigious, where we're able to present in front of a, you know, the audience, whoever's wanting to come to a certain session about a certain disease, and, um, and have an open question form, where we get a lot of feedback. We get kind of um, the questions we need to answer in thinking about moving this research to the next level, to have it published, to, to, to complete it. So it's very exciting, and it's a time when the information just uh, surges um, with regards to blood cancers. And um, it takes us all away from our work for almost a week at times, but it's worth it, and we're here to share with you information um, across the board on, on what we learned. So that's the purpose of the American Society of Hematology Meeting. Um, there is some fun in there as well. There's even things like a, a run to support. Uh, this year was to uh, for for um, uh, uh, hemoglobin disorders. There was a, a run where over a thousand people ran five kilometers and raised money for research. So there's even things like that. Um, next, I want to talk about an overview of blood cancers. Now, we're going to talk about different types of blood cancers on the call: um, leukemias, lymphomas, myelomas. And blood cancers fall into different groups, essentially based on the type of cell that is. Um, behaving badly or that's causing the disease. Uh, We've learned so much more about blood cancers now that we've probably um, unraveled it down to a state where someone may have the potential, the genetic or the molecular potential, to develop a blood disease in the future, meaning they may have some breakdown or some damage in the blueprints that drive blood production, as our blood is always turning over all elements of it, uh, including all the uh, diseases we'll talk about today, or all um, the, the, the the manifestation of uh, the body trying to do its normal activities and regenerate the elements of our blood and something goes awry. They're divided into big categories, Um, the leukemias, um, lymphomas, myelomas. They are, again, broken down by cell of origin. Uh, for, starting with um, lymphomas, in big big categories of B cell and T cell lymphomas, and Dr. Leonard going to um, give an overview of that, so I'll leave it at that. Multiple myeloma or myelomas and plasma cell diseases, I'm I'll, I'll, going to leave that to um, to Dr. Raj because she, she will um, give you uh, much more clarity on that. But the leukemias are essentially four groups: um, acute and chronic, um, and lymphoid and myeloid. Although there are many diseases that um, are straddle the fence, if you will. Acute leukemias are, are um, just what you think. They're conditions that require urgent treatment, more life-threatening. They often are associated with more more worrisome signs and symptoms, bleeding, bruising, and infection. Um, we've made great advances in pediatric leukemias. We're making tremendous advances in adult leukemias as well, as I'll share with you in a minute. In chronic leukemias, we've um, probably... Um, started the field um, with regards to uh, targeted treatments or specific treatments that would uh, unravel or treat just the lesion that or the defect in, in, in a cancer. And really all of the chronic leukemias have seen tremendous advances, and my, both myself, Dr. Leonard, and Dr. Raju will we'll all share with you um, these types of advances um, in, in, in the cancers, which really have borrowed from each other. We, we Sometimes they're using medications in one disease, and then, lo and behold, we find we can use it in another. So, what did we learn about leukemia and myeloproliferative disorders at um, at the ASH meeting? Um, I mainly look after patients with myeloproliferative diseases and chronic myeloid leukemia, but one could not um, not pay attention to the excitement regarding the advances in treatment for acute myeloid leukemia. This is a disease which can come on its own accord. Um, Generally, um, uh, with age, it does increase a bit. It's something that can strike people after other cancer treatment. It's probably also something that strikes people um, based on some damage the blood can acquire with age. And we've always had the challenge of of good treatments, good treatments that would not only put this type of leukemia in remission, but also keep it in remission. And the particular challenge of patients who are older, who sometimes have other health problems and whom strong chemotherapy could be dangerous or more dangerous than the disease itself. We've seen a, a string of advances. We've 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 we had um, some of the first FDA approvals for new drugs in acute leukemia in, in decades come through, and around this ASH meeting, we had two new FDA approvals for drugs um, in AML. And the one to talk about first would be um, a drug approved prior to the ASH called Venetoclax. Or, Venetoclax, <clears throat> Dr. Leonard, it is quite well-versed in. It was a drug that was developed for another type of leukemia, for, for lymphoid leukemias, because of an oncoprotein called BCL2. It's essentially a cancer protein that is, is not being regulated the way it should and it's preventing cells from undergoing their normal demise called apoptosis or cell death. And this powerful, well-tolerated drug um, was um, seen to be so powerful in chronic lymphoid leukemias and other diseases that it was then based on science and, and then rationale that the same target may be relevant in AML has now been shown to be a very effective treatment for older people with AML um, in whom the chemotherapies we still use and are still very effective but come with more risk um, maybe maybe not the right fit in particular the drugs combined with some of the drugs we've developed over the last 10 to 15 years called hypomethylene agents drugs called azacitidine and decitabine. And also a drug we've had for de- several decades called Cytarabine in lower doses called low-dose RSE or LODAC. We we see patients um, still have some of the same issues with low blood counts and risk of infection and bleeding, but not the same types of problems we would see with conventional chemotherapy and very high rates of remission, including difficult cases where the genetics or the the track record for t- some elderly patients with leukemia may have a a a. a, a element in the leukemia which would predict it may not go into remission, or if it would, it might come out of remission very quickly. And these, this venetoclax um, combination therapy with these two different types of conventional chemotherapies really has overcome that. So that, that was FDA approved. In, in, the, in the last year, we've seen approval of a targeted drug against a kinase or a switch that's, that's turned on in certain types of AML called FLT3, FLT3, which is essentially a, a, a turbocharging for a leukemia, and it, and it leads to a very proliferative form of AML. It it increases the relapse risk, and Midostorin, or RIDAPT, was the first drug FDA approved to use with chemotherapy for AML, and we saw a second medication, um, Giltaridinib, also FDA approved now as a second FLT3 inhibitor. There's another one um, called quizartinib, which was um, also studied in AML. So this is now three drugs in the same class, sort of a 1.0, 2.0, potentially 2 or 3.0 versions which are all moving through uh, the process. And at the ASH meeting this year, quizartinib data was shown uh, and really showed how it could improve the, the outcome, the response rate, and, the, and the, extend the survival for patients with AMLs, particularly adults with elderly patients with AML. And the last drug to mention has a very cute name. Uh, it what's called a hedgehog pathway inhibitor do not worry, no animals were harmed in the development of this drug. It has nothing to do with the actual animal. It's it's the name of a a cellular pathway that's involved in a very early stage of cell development um, related to uh, differentiation or cells deciding what kind of tissue they're going to develop into and their survival and and their programming. And when that um, pathway is disrupted, it's been linked to several cancers, really starting with actually a completely different area, squamous cell cancer, and... And, um, and and medulloblastoma, uh, these are you know, obviously not blood cancers, but borrowing from that theory that that pathway, if it's active in some cancers, may be relevant in acute leukemia, we now have that drug studied, w- just like I had mentioned, with lower-dose chemotherapy, a much more tolerated regimen, showing to be quite effective and beneficial for elderly patients with AML. So AMLs, we saw a huge uh, number of advances, a lot of excitement. We're all delighted to have better tools to treat elderly patients with with AML. In the last few minutes, um, I'll cover myeloproliferative disorders, which, honestly, were a little bit more quiet, but that's because we've been working pretty hard, and we've seen some advances over the last 10 to 15 years. Not that everyone else wasn't working very hard. It's just that sort of we had our time um, with approvals and and big advances, and now we're fine-tuning. So there are still patients with chronic myeloid leukemia who don't respond to the medications that we have available out there, the five FDA-approved drugs Um, amantinib, nilantinib, desantinib, basutinib, and panantinib, the five drugs that are out there. At this ASH meeting, we saw updates on two new drugs coming, interestingly, from other parts of the world, a drug called PF114 coming out of the Soviet Union. So this is a drug that's a potent drug, much probably like the drug panantinib, and is active against patients who have resistant forms of chronic myeloid leukemia, Appears to have a different safety profile, maybe a bit less in the, in the area of cardiovascular risk. And that medication continues to move now into a little bit more of a global space, and we'll get better information on that. But that's early signs of a, yet another tool for us in CML. We also saw a drug developed from a, a company based in China where we had data really originating from China called HQP. 1351. They all have sort of James Bond code names, these medications early in development. Very similar concept, a drug like the drug penantinib that's able to overcome resistant cases, including some of the more selective forms of resistance, including the T315i mutation. And again, we're examining the safety and and how this drug will um, proceed as well. We saw a little bit more mature data on a medication called um, Asiminib or ABL001, which is a very exciting drug. building on, on the theory that um, could we develop a drug in chronic myeloid leukemia that we could combine with the available medications we have, and that would be highly effective. So this is a study for in patients. What was presented ASH was a study in patients who had a specific form of resistance called a I mutation, which has been notoriously difficult to treat. We only have one approved medication, ponatinib, that really is effective for that now. And that doesn't always work, or that may not be a good fit for some patients based on safety. So this presentation showed that um, seminib or ABL-001, as it was previously known as, is particularly in higher doses, can be effective in those patients, which was a real um, additional notch um, for, the, for that medication. And, and further data should be forthcoming with that drug and further trials. So we're very excited about that drug, which is... Um, moving the field in a, in, in a complementary way with a, with a different type of inhibitor that we can add with our current medications and probably use by itself uh, that's very safe and well-tolerated. In the other myeloproliferative disorders, we had probably more um, slower movement, but clearly some, um, some nice discussions around, for example, how do we stratify patients with myeloproliferative disorders, myelofibrosis. We really can now take a patient when they're diagnosed and understand how their disease may behave based on their genetics and their molecular tests. Um, simple blood or bone marrow-based tests to tell us what the um, blueprints or the underpinnings of the diseases are, and, and, and it'll tell us who may need treatment earlier, who may need certain treatments, who may have a, a greater need for more um, aggressive treatment like bone marrow transplantation. And, and this is very helpful. And it, again, a very cute name, the MIPS70, which is the Molecular International Prognostic Scoring System for Patients with, with myeloproliferative Disorders. We have heard several presentations. We also heard and and discussed a lot about interferon, which is a medication we've had uh, for decades. It's used in other non-cancer diagnoses, such as hepatitis, Uh, but this drug has been a workhorse in myeloproliferative disorders. Interestingly, we saw both sides of the coin. We saw that longer-acting versions of interferon, a drug called Ropeg interferon, seems to be, with longer follow-up, quite effective and able to control uh, diseases like polycythemia and thrombocytosis uh, very well. We can combine it with um, ruxolitinib, Um, seemingly in a safe way. However, there was a a trial that was a coin toss trial where patients either got an older drug called hydroxyurea versus interferon. Those are both considered standard options, although hydroxyurea is probably more standard. And they seem to be similar. They seem to be both effective. We We wanted to see if we could make the case that one might be better than the other, and that may not be the case just yet. I think we need a little bit more time. So, in order not to soak up all the time, there's so many things that we want to talk about, so many exciting advances. I'm going to, I'm going to stop there, and uh, and I'm going to pass it on to my colleagues. And thank you for your attention.
1: Well, oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really, really wonderful and a wonderful way to start off this this workshop today. So, thank you so much. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Uh, Dr. Dr. Leonard will be focusing on lymphoma and. Um, he is the Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He is also Associate Dean for Clinical Research, Weill Cornell Medicine. He's also Associate Director, Sandra and Edward Mayer Cancer Center at Weill Cornell Medicine, and Executive Vice Chair, Joan and Sanford I. Weill Department of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian. So he wears many hats. And Dr. Leonard is going to be addressing an overview of lymphoma, lymphoma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH and key questions to ask your healthcare team about your treatment options, including clinical trials. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard.
3: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner. And I echo uh, all of the comments uh, from Dr. Morrow uh, about the meeting. It was uh, an exciting meeting and uh, something that uh, it's great to be able to come back and have updates to share with you today. So uh, lymphomas are a complicated set of disorders of the lymph cells. There are uh, roughly 100 different types of lymphoma, and they're divided into Hodgkin lymphoma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is much more common. Non-Hodgkin lymphomas are uh, divided into T-cell lymphomas, which is about 10% of lymphomas, and B-cell lymphomas, which are about 90% of lymphomas. So most people with lymphoma have a B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, although there are uh, different types of Hodgkin and T-cell that we're going to touch on uh, a little bit later uh, in this discussion. So of the B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, there are a group called indolent or low-grade or slower-growing lymphomas, a group called aggressive lymphomas, Uh, And then a group that fall into the other types of lymphomas. So uh, the indolent lymphomas are more chronic, longer term lymphomas where most people manage them over many different, many years. And so most people with indolent lymphoma. Um, live a long time with their lymphoma, often do not die from it, but manage it as a chronic disease like high blood pressure, diabetes, some of those things, although for some people it can be uh, quite serious. And so these are scenarios where we want to continue to improve therapies and give patients a better outcome and also have options uh, that are less toxic or can work when the standard treatments are not working. On the other hand, the more aggressive types of lymphomas um, have good and bad features to them. The aggressive lymphomas in some cases can be cured, meaning you go through a course of treatment and don't have to deal with them again, so that's a good thing. Um, However, that doesn't happen with all people, and so having newer treatments uh, that can work where other things don't work uh, is also very important. So it's a lot to cover in about 10 minutes or so, the the landscape of these, but I'm just going to hit some of the high points And I'll bring them up kind of disease category by category um, with a reminder of kind of the background uh, of those. So the first area I want to start with is actually not termed a lymphoma, but something called chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. CLL is really closer to a lymphoma, meaning it's an accumulation of the lymph cells that we see uh, in the lymph nodes and in the spleen, Uh, in more typically in lymphomas, but patients with CLL also more typically present with an abnormal white blood cell count. The white blood cells normally fight infections, and in CLL patients tend to have lots of, of these white blood cells, and the problem in part is that they crowd out the normal cells and cause uh, anemia and low platelets, so patients can be tired, have anemia, other complications of that, and bleeding. So the, the standard therapies for CLL include a variety of different chemotherapy regimens over many years, ranging from oral therapy, a drug called chlorambicil or lucaran, uh which is given more to older patients, a chemo regimen called Bendamustine with a, an antibody treatment called Rituxan, or a regimen called FCR, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab, and these are uh, combinations of chemotherapy and antibody treatment. And then there's another drug called obinutuzumab, and and uh, uh, and other anti-CD20 antibodies that are used for for certain patients. So there's a whole gamish of treatments for older patients, younger patients, and they all have pros and cons. So why did I give you all that background? Because there were two very important studies presented at ASH. One in the plenary session, which means that it's uh, among the most important abstracts out of the thousands that are presented at the meeting. And the other is uh, was presented in what's termed late-breaking abstract, meaning the data are relatively new. And I first want to mention that I'm very proud and happy that these are big phase three trials comparing standard of care treatment to new treatment. And it's important to note that they are funded by the National Cancer Institute and our federal government. And I think that all of us who care about uh, these disorders should recognize the importance of federal funding of this. These these two studies answered questions that while they may be important to industry and pharmaceutical companies and supported by them, they are really the leaders in the field more independently and our tax dollars at work. So when we talk about supporting federal research, uh, for cancer and other serious medical conditions, this is an example where that research pays off and while we answer things that can really make a difference to patients. And so very briefly, one of the studies was performed in older patients comparing bendamustine rituxan, where rituximab, which is one of the standard treatments, a chemotherapy regimen, to a new drug called ibrutinib, which I'll talk about in a second, or a combination of rituximab and abrutinib, And the net of this study, so first abrutinib is what's called a kinase inhibitor. It flicks switches in lymphoma cells. It's a, a drug that's approved. There are others in this category such as acalabrutinib. These are approved for certain types of lymphoma. And the net is that abrutinib has been very productive, very useful treatment. It's a pill that's generally taken indefinitely, that can um, be very useful in uh, CLL as well as certain other lymphomas. And the net of this study that compared the standard chemotherapy to ibrutinib or rituximab plus ibrutinib is that the patients who received ibrutinib had a better progression-free survival, meaning it took longer for their disease to come back. The disease responded and it took longer for it to come back. The treatment effect lasted longer. So this paper was actually presented and published online in the New England Journal of Medicine um, this week as well, reflecting the importance of this study. So it really suggests, and there are a lot of caveats that I can't go into, ibrutinib is an indefinite treatment as opposed to a shorter course of chemotherapy. But the net is that there were some uh, trade-offs in side effect profile um, that I think some would favor uh, the ibrutinib part, um, uh, the ibrutinib side. And overall survival, meaning how long people live, is still pending and being watched and will need many, many more months and and probably years of follow-up to see. The other study that I want to mention relating to CLL is in patients under the age of 70 where Ibrutinib, this is another federally funded study, Ibrutinib was compared to a different chemotherapy regimen, perhaps a bit more effective and a little bit more toxic chemotherapy regimen that's been around for decades called FCR, fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab. Like the other study, this study had about 500 patients and it looked at the progression free and overall survival, meaning how well did the, tra- the treatment last. And how long do the patients live? And the net of this study was also similar that the abrutinib beat the chemotherapy. It took longer for the patients to have a disease relapse, the disease stayed in remission longer. And in fact, in this study, patients live longer if they had abrutinib versus FCR. So the net of this is that abrutinib um, is already widely used for patients with CLL as well as other lymphomas. We have other drugs in this category. Such as a calibrutinib that are approved for certain situations and others in clinical trial. But it seems like abrutinib will now be for many patients. I might even say most patients, I'm not quite ready to say all patients, um, a preferred treatment as part of the initial treatment and certainly maybe something that people use at relapse if they hadn't had it before, and that's from a variety of different trials. So that's a great development, particularly when we have people living longer. There are a lot of caveats about side effect profiles and trade-offs to that, but certainly many people with CLL should be talking with their doctor about abrutinib and drugs in a similar category there. Now, I will mention there's another drug that has been pretty uh, exciting recently called venetoclax. This is a BCL2 inhibitor. BCL2 is a drug that keeps cells alive and um, helps make them resistant to to treatment. I'm sorry, BCL2 is a protein, I should say. And venetoclax inhibits this protein and makes the cells more sensitive to treatment. And so the net of venetoclax is that it's being combined with uh, ibrutinib in a variety of settings. And the net is, in various studies and various settings, is that that combination may actually make the, the treatment work better and may actually allow patients to stop treatment. If you the idea being if you take two drugs for a, a fixed period of time, maybe a year or two years, or until certain markers are achieved, maybe you don't have to stay on the drug indefinitely. So that is there were several abstracts looking at that, very exciting, um, but again, complicated as to what the choices people can make, but another option for patients um, with CLL. I'm going to very quickly mention a couple other drugs and and studies that were very important. I know we only have a short amount of time, and maybe we'll come back to some of these uh, in our discussions. There was a drug called brentuximab Vedotin, which is approved for Hodgkin lymphoma, and a special type of lymphoma called CD30-positive lymphoma, which has a protein on the tumor cells called cd 30 brentuximab is an antibody drug conjugate where an antibody, an immune protein that sticks to the cells, has hooked to it a chemotherapy drug. So this is basically a fancy way to deliver chemotherapy more specific to the tumor cells. So this drug, brentuximab is approved for Hodgkin lymphoma in certain settings and in this anaplastic large cell type of lymphoma. So there was a big randomized trial focusing primarily but not entirely on anaplastic large cell patients, some other T-cell lymphoma patients that had that CD30 target there. And the net of this trial was that it suggested that if you swap in one of the drugs of CHOP, CHOP being the standard chemotherapy regimen, if you remove one drug called vincristine and swap in this new drug, that the efficacy was much better. And so for people with CD30-positive T-cell lymphomas, This is, again, moving a drug that's approved for some situations in the relapse situation, now showing um, that if you add it to chemotherapy as a first treatment, that there can be benefit. I'll mention briefly one other study that I was involved with. This is a study using a drug called lenalidomide, which is approved. I'm sure you'll hear in the next talk lenalidomide, also called Revlimid, which is approved for myeloma. It's also approved for certain types of lymphoma called mantle cell lymphoma. So I led a study called the AUGMENT trial. This is for people with recurrent follicular lymphoma, the most common of the indolent lymphoma types, as well as a type of lymphoma called marginal zone lymphoma, the second most common of the indolent types. And the net is that this was a trial that randomized patients to either receive standard rituxan or rituximab treatment, one of the standard treatments, versus lenalidomide or Revlimid plus rituxan. And the net of this study was that the progression-free survival, meaning how long the disease stayed in remission, more than doubled if we gave two drugs versus one drug. It was over three years versus just over one year and the response rates were significantly higher, meaning the rates of tumor shrinkage. And so this suggests that lenalidomide, which does add to the side effect profile, so it's something that people need to talk about with their doctors, obviously, can improve the efficacy of rituxan in indolent lymphoma. So those are some new data there. And then finally, I'll just mention that there are a number of new drugs that are being explored further. One area that we've talked about in these conferences before is CAR T-cells. Uh, the T-cells are immune cells that help fight uh, lymphoma or other targets, and these are cells that are removed from the patient's blood, engineered to better fight tumor cells, and then reinfused into the patient. And we have more and more data on this, and I would say that these data reinforce that CAR T-cells have an important role for certain types of lymphoma, particularly relapsed aggressive lymphoma, but that these are being studied in other settings, and now we have several CAR T-cell products that are approved and available for patients, particularly with recurrent aggressive lymphoma and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. There are many other new drugs that are being studied. Lots of the abstracts focused on them. And I think with that, um, maybe we'll come back to some of those a little bit later. Um, But uh, a lot happening and a lot of new options for patients with different types of lymphoma. And as I started with, CLL.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Leonard. That was really wonderful. And actually, I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A. And thanks for covering so much in such a brief amount of time. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, So, Get your questions ready, because we'll soon be taking questions. Our next speaker is Dr. Nupur Rajay. Dr. Rajay is Director, Center for Multiple Myeloma, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Rajay is going to be presenting an overview of multiple myeloma, multiple myeloma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and quality of life concerns. It is really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rajay.
4: Thanks so much, Carolyn. It's it's a real pleasure to be here uh, this afternoon and I really want to echo all of my colleagues enthusiasm you know when we come back from ASH which is this American Society of Hematology meeting uh, there's a lot of excitement which is palpable and I think in the hematologic malignancy space we are specifically um, very very fortunate to have a lot of advances which have happened in the last few years in multiple myeloma as obviously obviously Obviously, one of those where a lot, as you all know, has happened over the last 10 years or so. Uh, But before really jumping into uh, some of the advances we saw at uh, this year's meeting, I'm just going to give you a brief overview on uh, myeloma. Um, And just to kind of set the stage here, multiple myeloma, as you all know, is a bone marrow-derived Uh, cancer, uh, which arises from cells known as plasma cells. Now, these plasma cells are a type of a white blood cell, which is important to the immune system, and their function predominantly is to produce antibodies or proteins called immunoglobulins. Now, normally, uh, these plasma cells comprise less than 5% of the blood cells in the bone marrow. But for reasons not completely understood, sometimes these plasma cells can start um, proliferating and start growing um, uncontrollably, and these are then referred to as myeloma cells, and these myeloma cells then... um, end up proliferating in the bone marrow and can cause damage to the bone marrow. Over the years, um, uh, over time, they collect and form little tumors and can cause damage to the bones, and that's where the name multiple comes into play, where multiple bones can, in fact, be um, damaged with this disease. The symptoms associated with myeloma are largely a consequence of the presence of the protein in the blood or the urine, which has been produced by these uh, myeloma cells or by the bone marrow infiltration of these plasma cells. And the symptoms typically include bone pain and anemia, and this, in fact, are these two symptoms are, in fact, the commonest symptoms associated with multiple myeloma. There are other features which folks need to be aware of, which include increased calcium, largely because of bone damage. You can have kidney uh, dysfunction or kidney problems in patients with myeloma. And given that this is a disease of the immune cells, patients with multiple myeloma are particularly at a risk for um, infection. And I think the most important Uh, feature of trying to mitigate some of these downstream effects of multiple myeloma is to treat the underlying disease. We've been very fortunate um, in terms of therapies, and unlike some of the leukemias and lymphomas, we actually have moved away completely from traditional chemotherapy, and over the last 10, 12 years, we have more than, I believe, 12 or 13 combinations Of different novel drugs uh, which have been uh, tested in the treatment of myeloma so the progress for this disease which still remains an incurable disease is has been unprecedented and there's been a lot of excitement around some of the new drugs that we have um, uh, for this disease. At this year's ASH uh, we had Several presentations, which I do believe uh, will in fact be practice changing for multiple myeloma, um, as Dr. Leonard had pointed out, there was an abstract presented in the late breaking session, even for myeloma and this was a very large trial which is referred to as the Maya trial, and the Maya trial has really built upon what has become the standard of care for multiple myeloma. He mentioned the drug lenalidomide or Revlimid. You all are aware that Revlimid has been approved for the treatment of myeloma now uh, over a decade back. Um, And the standard of care for patients with multiple myeloma, specifically those who don't get a transplant, has to date been lenalidomide in combination with dexamethasone. What the investigators of the Maya study did was added on a monoclonal antibody to this RD backbone, which is lenalidomide dexamethasone backbone, and the antibody used in this case was daratumumab. Daratumumab is a monoclonal antibody directed against CD38. You all are aware that this has been approved in the relapse setting. Relapse is when the disease comes back after initial remission. And it is, in fact, being used in combination with both lenalidomide, pomalidomide, and some of the proteasome inhibitors as well. Now, this trial has built upon what we use as standard of care in the upfront setting, which is Lendex. So combining it with daratumumab in over, the trial included more than 700 patients with about 350 or so getting this antibody with the lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And by doing so, we saw a very nice control of disease so that the time spent without evidence of disease has not yet been reached at a median follow-up of more than two and a half years, with 80% of patients remaining without evidence of disease at two and a half years. This was compared to the standard of care, which is lenalidomide and dexamethasone, and adding on that monoclonal antibody to this backbone translated into an improvement in disease control in by about 50% uh, percent. so in my mind really a practice changing um, Approach for multiple myeloma, wherein a drug like daratumumab, which we are quite familiar with using, will now be used in the upfront setting uh, for the treatment of um, multiple myeloma. The good news is that combining it with lenalidomide did not afford any uh, significant um, toxicities. So in general, it was extremely well tolerated by most. Uh, patients. Now, all of you are familiar with the fact that in multiple myeloma, we do use a lot of maintenance approaches. And the standard of care for whether or not you have had a transplant or not up until now has always been lenalidomide maintenance. So we've continued lenalidomide up until the disease comes back again. And what was presented at this year's ASH was another Uh, clinical trial. This is another large phase three trial uh, with over 500 patients. It's called the Tumulin 3 multiple myeloma trial, wherein instead of lenalidomide, they used an oral proteasome inhibitor called ixazomib. Now, ixazomib is, again, approved for the treatment of multiple myeloma in the relapse setting, and what the, the investigators did here was used it after patients have gotten a transplant, compared it to um, no maintenance. Now, we have never had a study with a proteasome inhibitor maintenance to date in myeloma, and what this Tumulin-3 study showed that ixazomib was extremely well tolerated, and it was able to maintain control of disease For a much longer period of time. Given that ixazomib is a really well-tolerated drug, it now provides an option of a proteasome um, uh, inhibitor-based maintenance strategy as well. And like you've just heard, uh, with respect to the leukemias and the lymphomas, we had a bunch of new drugs also, which were tested in myeloma. Venetoclax is something uh, which has been described by both of my colleagues in leukemias and the lymphomas, and we've used it in myeloma as well. And as has been described, venetoclax is a BCL-2 inhibitor. And at this year's ASH meeting, this was combined with the proteasome inhibitor carfilzomib and the place where we find it most uh, useful is in patients who have the 1114 translocation in multiple myeloma we saw that when combined with the drug carfilzomib 100% of patients actually responded to this combination and in general this combination was very very well tolerated we also had data presented on a new drug, which you're going to hear about more in the coming years, and we expect this drug to get approved for the treatment of myeloma as well. This drug is called Selenexor. It's a novel selective inhibitor of the nuclear export proteins, and what it does uh, by inhibiting this, uh, it's a cyan inhibitor, and by doing so, it uh, blocks a whole bunch of... Proteins and uh, oncogenes, which are present in tumor cells inside the tumor cells, and by blocking them, it overwhelms the cells and causes killing of the cells. Now, this drug was combined with dexamethasone in patients at sort of uh, the stage where they did not have a lot of options. This trial was called the STORM trial, and these patients who received this drug had seen both uh, immunomodulatory drugs, including lenalidomide and pomalidomide, had seen both proteasome inhibitors, uh, bortezomib as well as carfizomib, and had also been treated with deratumumab and the disease having come back after all of these five drugs. And despite the fact that their disease was fairly advanced, responses were seen, and patients' myeloma was controlled with the use of selinexor with dexamethasone. I do think we need to do a little bit of work with this combination in terms of tolerability of the use of selinexor, and one has to be able to overcome the nausea uh, and uh, the vomiting, which can be induced by Selenexor. And I think over the next couple of years, we will begin to learn and appreciate how best to modulate the dose of it so that we can maximize on its efficacy uh, and also medicate some of the toxicities that I've just mentioned to you. I think, like all other hematologic cancers, we were very excited by all the immunological approaches as well. Over the last couple of years, now you have heard about us trying to target a protein called BCMA, which is the B cell maturation antigen. Um, this protein is pretty much expressed on all multiple myeloma cells. A couple of years back, or last year, we presented data using CAR T cells, as Dr. Leonard has described. These. Are Genetically modified T cells, which are taken out from the patients themselves. After we modify them, we give them back to uh, the patient, and then the work of uh, destroying the tumor is done by these genetically modified. T-cells, also known as CARS, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, and in myeloma, we've tried to target this protein called BCMA. Uh, Well, there were several uh, presentations at this year's uh, ASH targeting the same protein, BCMA. There was the Chinese data, the legend data, using um, the L-CAR-B38M T-cell. We had previously presented data with BB2121, and more recently at this year's ASH, our group presented data on BB21217. And I think what we've seen or begun to appreciate in multiple myeloma is CAR- with CAR T-cells, we are seeing very, very high response rates to the tune of 80 and 90%. And in a very refractory patient population, we are able to see minimal residual disease negative state in patients with multiple myeloma. And this is translating into disease control for uh, in excess of over a year, depending on whichever CAR T-cell you use. The other important thing we've begun to appreciate is the fact that our patients are able to actually tolerate this treatment Quite well. So, the typical side effects of the cytokine release syndrome and the neurotoxicity was, although noted with these cellular therapies, it was very manageable, and patients have done quite well. Excitingly, at this year's ASH, we also had a more off-the-shelf approach, and this is called a bispecific T-cell engager or a bite, and this, again, targeted the same protein BCMA, and remarkably, with this bite antibody, which does not require all of this manufacturing that I've talked to you about, we were able to see again, minimal residual disease negative state in patients with very, very advanced multiple myeloma. So obviously, uh, you know, this is a very, very exciting space, and there is more to come. And um, we obviously uh, are at a threshold where I do think we're going to have transformative treatments uh, for the care of patients with multiple myeloma. I just wanna end by really underscoring the fact that you know we've been able to make all of these advances in myeloma and some of the other diseases as well because of largely patient participation. So unless, until and unless you all are willing and able to participate in clinical trials, we are unable to gather the kind of data that we have. And a lot of these data have uh, regulatory implications so that the broader myeloma patient community can actually have access to uh, these drugs, and finally, I do want to take a few minutes to highlight uh, not just the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, dedication and um, uh, what patients do for us, but. You know, it, there is a care team involved, and your caretakers who are such an important part of uh, uh, your uh, disease, so that you're not in this disease alone and you have a bunch of your team includes your doctors, your nurses, social workers, and most importantly, your family and friends who provide you with the much needed emotional support to go through all of the treatments that I've just highlighted and outlined uh, here. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen and before signing off, I do want to uh, wish all of you uh, happy holidays. Thank you.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Rajay. That was really transformative and wonderful information for everybody to hear on the call. So thank you so much. And we're going to take questions very soon, so please prepare your questions because we're going to try to take as many of them as possible. I just want to say a few words about cancer care services to you because clearly in listening to our program today and all the advances in the treatment of the hematologic, the blood cancers, and from all the news from ASH, I do want to also remind all of you, and I know you don't have to be reminded of this, but for all of you coping with blood cancers, coping with cancer, it can be... Present other kinds of psychosocial challenges or emotional, social, and practical challenges. So I just wanted to give you a sense of a go-to organization for you um, with cancer care. Um, and we do offer um, a host of oncology social workers here to um, who staff our hope line and, and who you can contact for practical and financial assistance, for um, counseling services, one, someone to talk to on the phone about your concerns. Um, and also um, we have a number of support groups. I think we have over 138 online support groups and many telephone support groups, and many of you do take advantage of them already. In addition to cancer care, there are many other um, blood cancer organizations that offer tremendous support as well. So I would... We want to be sure that you understand that, and when you get your evaluations, you'll be getting a summary of all of the services that you can access for free, that are supportive in nature and that complement um, your, um, your medical treatments that are so vital and all of these advances. Now we have time for questions, and so I'm going to ask um, uh, Sonia to tell you how to queue up the questions and let the questions begin and bring all of our speakers on board as well, please.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Allison S. The line is now open.
1: I'm wanting to know what are the signs of progression for essential thrombocystemia? Thank you very much for that question. Um and from Allison's group and thank you. And um uh, Dr. Morrow, um would you address that question in a general way? Thank you. Hmm. Or Doctor Leonard, are you able to please check
0: if you're sure
3: you. c- oh. sure. Um so the Milo, uh, essential thrombocytosis is one of the myeloproliferative disorders It's an overgrowth, so to speak, of the bone marrow, where the bone marrow is revved up for a variety of different reasons and is making uh, an excess number of cells uh, in the bone marrow. Sometimes patients can have enlargement of the spleen and other areas as part of this group of disorders. So the typical signs of progression uh, are changes in the blood counts sometimes it's the blood counts going higher, sometimes it's going lower if the bone marrow is not functioning well. Sometimes it is the spleen getting larger and and pain in the right or I'm sorry, the left upper part of the abdomen. Some patients have symptoms um with these group of disorders including itching, uh fatigue, rashes, or other things that could be a sign of issues there. So, if you have a concern that the disease is progressing, it's it's important. There's not just one little factor, but it's good to speak with your doctor or a healthcare provider about that, just to make sure that they're looking for the right things.
1: Awesome, thank you. Um, and uh, we have a question from one of our um, uh, from our online participant. Um, is myelodysplasia a form of myeloma, Dr. Rajay? Could you address that question, please?
4: Sure. So uh, myelodysplasia is not a form of myeloma. Myelodysplasia is uh, when your bone marrow is not quite working well and it, in fact, can be a Precursor to a leukemia. Uh, there's a different. There are different types of myelodysplasia, and it could be sometimes uh, a de novo myelodysplasia, and often can happen because of aging of the bone marrow or some uh, abnormalities within the bone marrow. But I think what uh, folks are probably referring to is the secondary. Uh, Myelodysplasia, which is uh, impact of the bone marrow uh, on the bone marrow because of some of the treatments that we use for diseases like myeloma, Uh, and specifically, you know, we have seen uh, the development of myelodysplasia in patients who have been on drugs like uh, lenalidomide maintenance, uh, specifically after they've had a transplant. So that is, in fact, a secondary um, cancer to the treatment for myeloma, so very separate from myeloma, but can happen because of treatment for your myeloma. Thank you. Um,
1: And we have another telephone question, I believe.
0: Thank you. Our next question comes from Jamma B. Your line is now open. If your phone is on mute, please unmute.
1: I beg your pardon, Uh, I'd like to thank the panel for their time and for the effort they put into sharing this information. But speaking for the patient community, especially that community that is now into the Medicare system, how do patients pay for a continual pill that's extremely expensive? And can we do anything as patients to advocate for these to be included in Medicare? That's a great question, Um, and I'm going to ask um, Dr. Leonard, do you have any thoughts about that?
3: Uh, You said Dr. Leonard. I'm sorry, it was a little hard to hear.
1: Oh, yes, Dr. Leonard, sorry.
3: Yes, sorry. So that is a a very important issue, the issue around um, cost of care in general, and I think that um, you can talk about that in lots of areas of cancer care and blood cancer care. Certainly that uh, is a key issue for um, for oral drugs, but honestly there are, as I'm sure many people here know, there are other issues around cost of care, uh, other treatments and other aspects of care as well that are very, very important. Um, I think that that is in part why we are doing studies to see if we can shorten the duration of care. I alluded to one where perhaps patients could take two drugs for a shorter period of time rather than having to stay on one drug indefinitely, and there are theoretical reasons why that uh, could be helpful and and real reasons as well. Um, To more specifically address your your question about advocating for uh, for, uh, support, And assistance, uh, I would say a couple of different things. Um, I think we all need to be very cognizant of the regulatory issues, um, whether it's Medicare or other things that are uh, affecting uh, aspects of cancer care and research. And, you know, on a very direct level, um, you know, telling your elected representatives that you care about uh, these issues. Uh, And as they uh, come up, I think, is a very useful uh, and important uh, thing, and paying attention to those issues uh, is key. I would also encourage patients to talk to your treatment team if you're having issues affording your medications or um, concerned about that. There are resources out there. Uh, Some of the manufacturers and others uh, have programs that can be helpful uh, certainly, there are things that can be done in some cases to provide patients with assistance that may or may not solve the problem, and uh, you know, those are complicated areas, but I think having someone who can at least look into those for an individual patient is important. Um, Overall, I would say that uh, it is good for patients to learn about advocacy groups. I know that cancer care can certainly facilitate connecting you with an advocacy group, whether it's uh, in the diseases we're talking about, uh, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, the Multiple Myeloma Foundation, and many others that are Uh, Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, many others that are out there advocating both individually and collectively uh, about that. Uh, And so I think, you know, patients need to make their voices known, and I would look in those. Those are a couple of resources. I know Cancer Care can refer you to others where you can make your voices known, because I think that it does change um, the world out there when patients kind of unite with others that are interested in these areas and make known the issues they're having, the challenges, and and want their elected representatives to do what they can uh, around these complicated issues.
1: Yeah, and thank you so much, Dr. Donna. That was really wonderfully answered. And I want to just uh, just piggyback on that to say that indeed um, many of the cancer organizations, the blood cancer organizations, leukemia, lymphoma, Society, lymphoma research foundation, cancer care have co-payment foundations which actually help people with the costs of their medications. They also have their own financial assistance programs as well that assist. That's, those programs are for people in the United States. Um, all the other services they offer are available to people from cancer care anyway throughout the United States, but the financial assistance is restricted to the United States. Um also I would definitely urge you, and we've done this in a number of programs, where you would want to talk with your physician if you're having financial concerns, because they may refer you to their financial assistance program or their social worker on their staff or patient navigator, because there are a number of programs that you may not be aware of that you may be entitled to either state or federal programs that you think you are not, you're not entitled to and you may very well be. Um, Also, if anyone's on the call as a veteran, there are a lot of different um, areas. And so we will, in the evaluations, when you get them put in those financial resources to be aware of, but also to just go ahead and call our staff if anyone's having that problem right now, um, we do have a director of um, advocacy who does represent cancer care, and many of these other organizations do as well on a federal level in terms of these issues. So, um, And it is, I think what Dr. London has said also is to certainly make your voices known, but we do know also that you're in the midst of treatment and doing lots of other things, and you may not have the time. There are staff people out there who are working on these areas, um, and um, so I I think that's a wonderful question. It actually almost, it, it should be its own program. Actually, we do put it in some of our other programs, so thank you for raising that. Um, uh, but I would say definitely do have, do use your healthcare team and do contact, um, certainly Cancer Care and other organizations to help you um, navigate this. This is really something that, um, and also many of the medical organizations um are also very concerned about the cost and are trying to work with, um, with our industry to try to see what can be done about, about helping you with that. And I think as Dr. Lennon said, there are industry-supported programs as well to help you. So I hope that, that helps. Um, and um, just one or two more questions before we conclude. Um, so uh, for Dr. Morrow, um, what are the pros and cons of metaport placement and the side effects of metaports?
2: Sorry if I might have not have been available earlier to answer a question um but metapore placement is a very it's a very interesting question it um for many patients can um ease the difficulties of uh repeated i v starts and um when someone needs um- very close monitoring for different therapies and leukemias uh transfusions are often quite common um I think it's a great thing to talk to your healthcare team it's very dependent on the uh individual patient and their immune system and their, um, uh, the risks of, of uh, having a, an indwelling catheter or metaport placed, and there are other types of venous access devices which are also available. Um, so, again, depending on the patient, depending on the regiment, uh, how long um, one might need what's called central venous access, a metaport is um, not designed to be removed rather quickly. Uh, there are shorter-term uh, indwelling uh, venous access devices such as pick lines or other uh, tunneled uh, catheters, we call them, which uh, may be uh, removed a little bit easier and maybe more appropriate. So if you're having challenges getting your blood drawn, you're having multiple blood draws, you're having uh, trouble with IV starts and no one knows it, talk to your healthcare team. And if you're talking about a regimen where you might need a lot of blood draws, a lot of supportive care transfusions, make sure to raise it, because sometimes we you know, don't anticipate it as soon as we'd like to.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, and. This will be our last question. It really has to do with new research presented at ASH regarding young adults um, with um, lymphoma and actually uh, also, I guess, with um, leukemias, MPNs, or multiple myeloma. So, Dr. Lennon, do you want to start with, in terms of young adults, anything presented at ASH in terms of um, new treatments for young adults with lymphoma?
3: Well, I think that uh, a number of the treatments with young adults relating to lymphoma are uh, some of the ones that I've touched upon. The uh, lymphomas that are most common in young adults are the more aggressive lymphomas, Hodgkin lymphomas, something called primary mediastinal lymphomas. I'll talk about, very briefly, two categories of drugs. One is that brentuximab drug that I referenced, the, the antibody drug conjugate that targets CD30. CD30 is uh, lymphomas include Hodgkin lymphoma and um, the anaplastic large cell lymphoma in particular, and these can be seen in in young adults, and so there's a lot of work around those. The other thing that I would mention is that uh, in Hodgkin lymphoma and in primary mediastinal lymphoma, a type of aggressive lymphoma, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, in particular a drug called Pembrolizumab for the primary mediastinal and Hodgkins, And nivolumab, these are drugs that turn off the brakes of the immune system, so the immune system can help fight the lymphoma. There were more data on these, and these are also particularly relevant, and there are interesting studies uh, in adolescent, young adult patients uh, with these diseases that suggest that they have value.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Moore, do you want to add anything in terms of leukemias or MPNs in terms of young adults?
2: The demographics of those uh, of our diseases are a little bit more shifted towards um an older population, but certainly there's a spectrum and I talked a lot about advances in a m l which related to our which are related to older patients. The area I'd probably have to say where we may have an easier focus on younger patients um would be how do we properly use um the immune therapy car t cell therapy because I think the approvals and some of the um the earliest advances there have been um given the green light in younger patients. Uh, because of the diseases, first off, but also because of the uh, the uh, data we have and the availability and, and the tolerability and, and success we've seen. I think we're trying to sort out how do we use um, immune therapy related to bone marrow transplant, which is also something we consider um, in any patient, but um, it's something that's more easily done and, and perhaps more uh, meaningful and, and really the, uh, the right answer in many cases of younger people with uh, more risky leukemias, um, both lymphoid and myeloid. And I think as that technology advances, we'll understand how to use CAR T-cell therapy as a way to improve outcomes of bone marrow transplant as an alternative to bone marrow transplant. Um, I think there's many questions out there.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Dr. Rajay?
4: Yeah, no, I would agree with both my colleagues. You know, Mm -hmm. I think myeloma is generally a disease of the older patient population, although we are seeing 40% who are younger. And strategies such as... Some of which I've mentioned, the immune strategies, mostly the CAR T cells and bite uh, strategies, uh, if and when once approved, are going to be the perfect treatment strategies for patients, uh, the younger patients with myeloma. Excellent.
1: Well, I want to thank this. I know it could go on all afternoon because there are lots of questions. But I want to thank you um, and just being so wonderful in your presentations um, and just being here. Actually, you might have to ask. Um, actually uh, Dr. Morrow took a red eye in last night so really and I think the rest of you have done similar things so to some extent here here we're just very grateful to have all of you on the call also for all of you who queued up and asked questions on the phone and also um, online you know it makes a big difference your your questions really keep us very relevant to what your needs are and also give us suggestions uh, for example the question about the cost in terms of just doing the whole program on that topic alone so thank you Um, and it's a very relevant issue um, and very important to all of you And also, um, I uh, I just want to thank you all for being on the call today. Now, I did say that if we didn't ask, didn't get your questions answered, that we would address them. So let me do that right now. Um, So if you still have questions, which I know many of you do, just because you posted questions, um, please first of all take them to your healthcare team. Also, those of you who ask questions during the call or think of questions, always go to your health care team with them. They are, Of course, they know you the best, and there may be resources there that you haven't yet tapped into. But in addition to that, I know you all like to get other sources of information um, to get your needs met. So in your evaluations, you'll be getting them, but I just want to mention the organizations per se. So for general questions, please do contact Cancer Care. Um, ter- certainly, um, our staff are happy to help you in any way we can. We have lots of different resources. For specific types of cancers, for example, the Lymphoma Research Foundation only focuses on lymphoma, so that's a wonderful resource to, to access. Or another uh, organization is the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Just a wonderful organization um, which covers all blood cancers and has a number of different programs that would be helpful to you. Um, and so, and, also, and covers all the blood cancers, so that would be very helpful as well. And there are many others, so we'll list them all in your evaluation forms. So please do not ever feel that you're alone in coping with blood cancer, any type of cancer. Please know that you're part of a there's a lot of organizations out there that could help you, and we want to be sure to streamline it to you, so you don't have to call the whole world, just a few, and get the help you need. And if they don't have it, those organizations will get you to the place that will help you with it. Um, and uh, so uh, p- please know that. Also, we are entering this holiday time of year, so I do want to wish you all, as Dr. Rajay did, a, 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 you know, a very fruitful holiday season to some extent. And I know each person, there are different holidays throughout this entire couple of months, actually, so please uh, I hope those holidays for you um, are, are, are good holidays. And I um, and I also look forward to you being on other calls. We're doing a number of other blood cancer programs. Um, we have a program on CLL uh, for um, older persons living with CLL on Thursday, December 13th. We have an update on lymphoma um, from ASH, the same meeting, on January 15th. Um, and um, we have... Um, those two specifically, but might just end up getting all those, and you get your evaluation of getting all the programs we have coming up, so you'll be able to, if you haven't registered for them, do that already. Um, and again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. You've been a terrific group, and uh, I want to wish you all very well. Thank you very much.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.